0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a Welsh conductor who shot to fame when he won the Leeds conducting competition in 1986. He has had a long and distinguished career, holding title positions in Belgium, Norway, France, the United States and the United Kingdom. He has also had to go through the arduous task of learning to conduct again after suffering a stroke in 2021. It's a great pleasure to welcome Grant Llewellyn. Grant, it is very, very, very nice to meet you today. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much for asking. Um, As somebody who's listened to a couple of episodes you know that I always go right back to the beginning. And you may also know that I do a lot of stuff, you know, research on Wikipedia and your own website or your agent's website. And I can find nothing really before uh, the Leeds conducting competition. So do you come from a musical family? Uh, What were your earliest musical experiences, instruments and the such?
1: Okay, well, um, gosh, I've got 25 years to fill in. Exactly, yeah. um, I come from a large family of four boys um, and uh, in southwest Wales and Pembrokeshire. That means a pretty boisterous affair. Um, Rugby, football, cricket, musical instruments. Um, in in the shape of a piano at home and uh, two parents who sang very enthusiastically. (laughs) Hmm. Hmm. A grandmother who played uh, keyboard um, pretty badly, but she was very cuddly. And so uh, we were happy to sit on her lap um, as she ramped through Victoriana. Yeah. Um, my younger brothers, I'm the second of four. My younger, two younger brothers um, followed me uh, in pursuit of the cello and double bass um, and the piano. But uh, I really um, took off with the piano um, in the wake of my grandmother's enthusiasm, hmm. um, which yeah, five or six I think I started formal lessons mm. at uh, six um, and then the cello later at nine but I think you have to put all that in the context of the South Wales tradition of mm. love um, of music making, music making socially publicly in church, in school, at the rugby club, wherever you were, there was a chance that at any given moment, we would break into song.
0: Mm,
1: (laughs) Sounds rather romantic, but it still happens. And uh, um, so there was a lot of music in the air. um, And I sort of grabbed it um, with both hands through the cello and the piano. Um, and the early um, change to my whole existence and life um, was my mother and father um, seeing a documentary on Cheatham's School of Music.
0: Ah. Uh-huh.
1: And that was, it must have been 19. 19- 69 I suppose or 70 um so I was 10 and um I had the offer of going to Manchester to audition for this music school and I didn't give it a second thought really I just took it as it came uh I was pretty happy go lucky um hmm. about everything and uh, It was just an excuse to get to Manchester. I'd never been to Manchester from South West Wales. And in fact, get a chance to go and see Manchester United train. It was me. (laughs) Um, And my dad and I, um, we went down to the training ground in Salford um, and uh, saw a few of the names that I knew. And uh, it, it, it was exhilarating and thrilling and, and apparently I did an audition sometimes <laughs> sometimes as well um, <laughs> but uh, yeah I, so I was duly offered a place at Cheatham's and uh, a local educational authority grant in those days now it's direct grant um, so it wasn't sure I wasn't sure that um, I'd get the money but well lo and behold i found myself in a grimy industrial northern city center, coming from a idyllic bucolic Southwest Wales countryside, effectively, mm. near in Um And uh, once there, uh, again, I, I didn't, reflect on it very much. I don't think I was a particularly reflective um boy at that age, um always looking forward to the next challenge, the next opportunity. And I kind of got got on with life mm. amongst 250 specialist musicians. And they and they becoming they became increasingly specialized as I was there, I think I might've been the second or third year of intake. Yes. Um, so it was early days and there was a sort of crossover uh, between the day boys, the Mancunians who tends to be less musical and more sporty, which suited me fine. Um, and the, the real specialists who came from further and further afield. To board,
0: yeah. There, there's an important question right now, which is it's going to hang over this entire conversation unless I ask it right at this moment. Are you still a Manchester United fan? Because I am, and Daniel Harding is. <laughs>
1: well, I, yes,
0: um, I'm pleased to
1: hear it. I wasn't a Manchester United fan even
0: then. All right, okay.
1: I have always been a Tottenham, a Hotspur fan. Ah as uh, the family, uh, my mother, is from the east end of London, and her father supported Spurs, and so we had no choice. Um, uh, And I've lived to regret every minute. No, no, no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But, but, I mean, in 1970, if you went to watch training of Manchester United, you were probably going to see, through a, a fence... Best, Lauren Charlton, which were the sort of pop star footballers of their day. I mean, I know we're getting off conducting, but you know, it's it's a it's an interesting time in the sporting world.
1: Very, very important. Um, and you know, I, I say I want I was not not a Manchester United fan. Hey, every other week of the Saturday, it was either Old Trafford or Main Road. Mm. If I was free, mm. uh, so uh, I became a Manchester United city. Um, but in the day, back in the day, United were preeminent and were pretty dominant, mm. and City were the poor relations back then. Um, they had a few good years, and I was there through the 70s at Cheetham's. Um, and as I became more involved in concerts and the music, choirs, and orchestras. Saturday tended to be taken up with concert work.
0: Hmm. But
1: uh, whenever I could, I got along to watch them.
0: So when, I'm assuming it would be at we're in such a rich musical environment, as you said, it got richer through the 70s and became what it is today, a specialist music school. I'm assuming conducting first appeared for you there in some way or other, though I know, of course, that, they don't specifically teach conducting, but I, I wonder: was it there that you first it first piqued to your interest? Well,
1: yes. Back then, they actually did start a formal conducting class oh. uh, when I was 14, 15, Nicholas Smith, who was the conductor of the Northern Chamber Orchestra, I think, um, and it conducted various school ensembles, he did uh, um, take us for a few rudimentary classes um, but no I I, I, I learned on the job as we do by putting groups of friends together persuading them to give up you know their Sundays and we make music mm. and we you know find out what was in the library and it would be anything from a, a metamorphosis to carousel mm. at- as the parts were available. Um, and I undoubtedly learned more from playing cello under um, uh, some um, significant conductors. The school orchestra played with Jim Lochran and John Lennie Gardner in those early days, um, Tim Renish. Um, and of course, Michael Brewer, um, who was the director of music at the time, and I learned so much, especially about choral technique from him. Um, so it was it was a rich environment, and there was some formal, you know, beat pattern classes and instrumentation, score reading. Um, but you tended to have to do that if you were playing in orchestra anyway. Yeah. You know, especially when one progressed to the front of a section, it was expected that you'd have a miniature score and, you you know, you'd find out what was happening.
0: Mm. Uh, And so on to, we would call it further and higher education. I don't know what it's called now. Um, Where did you study and what did you study?
1: Right. Well, uh, I took a choral exhibition audition at Cambridge um, in my sixth form, and I applied to do music at university, thinking that it would keep more options open longer. I was an okay cellist. I was not going to set the world alight on the cello. I don't know. I may have been able to hold down a job. I probably would have um, with with work and application. Um, anyway, I, I was awarded a College Scholarship and I got an exhibition to uh, read music at Common Key College, Cambridge, which I deferred a year, taking a year off, I think, Called it then. Mm. Um, and I traveled to Italy where I had some um, private cello lessons and chamber music classes at the Conservatorio di Murlac, Francesco Murlac in Perugia and in Santa Cecilia in Rome. Mm. Um, but it was a fabulous year. I wasn't attending regular classes at either one place. And I played as much football as I did, frankly, the cello. In fact, I earned earned a lot more money playing football than I did playing the cello. Um, But uh, it was a a year where I sort of came to terms with the cello. I'd practiced more than I ever had before. And and decided on the strength of it that um, I would go up to university and concentrate on conducting. Mm. Um, so it was uh, a conscious decision to neglect the cello somewhat. Well, I didn't neglect it. I played like, I always had and m- many concerts, but uh, um, I favored the idea of conducting it. Was a little more than an idea at that point, but uh, I'd done a little bit.
0: But you were at Cambridge, so it was a fertile music environment, and therefore, you know, you can do as you've been doing at Cheatham's and and form groups and uh, and sort of get your hands wet.
1: Exactly, um, and uh, in the first year, um, you know, I was learning the ropes um, and playing the cello a fair amount, and I had even song to sing five times a week. Um, and uh, each college, of which there are about 30 or so, had its own societies, orchestras, choirs, operas as well as the, the university-based uh, groups. So there was tons of music going on, and it was a question of trying to play the field and decide which uh, would be most beneficial um, and rewarding, and... So starting off fairly small within the college um, I then expanded to the University Opera Society and the University Music Society Orchestra um, in my second and third years.
0: We're just about to come on to four of the biggest names I could ever think of in the conducting world who mentored you uh, at Tanglewood in America. But before we go to Tanglewood, were you having any lessons at Cambridge, any private lessons with any conducting teachers, people or somebody you could go and speak to, a mentor or somebody whose advice you could seek? The conductors whom we enjoyed um, were largely...
1: um, music directors at one or other college chapel. So Nicholas, uh, Stephen Cleary, of course um, at Kings and Philip Ledger before him and um, George Guest at uh, St. John's College Cambridge. Richard Marlowe uh, was a wonderful, again, wonderful choral conductor at Trinity. Um, So there weren't symphonic conductors um, to learn from alas mm. um, but you know in a sense it gave us <laughs> the freedom to conduct our Mahler symphonies if you had the the wherewithal to motivate other students um, and Puccini operas and Stravinsky the Rake's Progress I did and, you know the Opera Society there, we, we were crazily ambitious. Um, and I can't imagine, I've just done the, the Rake's progress again, and I cannot imagine what it must have sounded back, like back then, but it was, you know, a fully fledged production um, in the Arts Theatre in Cambridge, and somehow or other, we sold tickets to the to the public, <laughs> um, and uh, it it was a great, very steep learning curve. But um, the shock to the system was postgraduate at the Royal College of Music with Norman Delmar. Mm. Certainly did not suffer fools. And he didn't take any prisoners. And, um, you know, you might well have conducted Mahler at Cambridge, but this was the real world that he was preparing us for. Um, And I spent two years with him, um, and it was tremendous. Mm -hmm. Um, His first and foremost, his utterly sincere and profound music-making. Um, but he always backed that up with, uh, I would say, what's the right word? Um, forensic, I suppose, knowledge of the score and scores, mm. music history um his book the anatomy of the orchestra was our sort of bible um and as i say you know quite a few of us fell by the wayside um and uh i almost said well i i enjoyed my two years there but it was really really tough and exacting um but rewarding and uh i i followed Norman Del Mar with the four <laughs> people whom you're referring to.
0: Well, um, yes. So, I mean, how do we go from Norman Del Mar, who's appeared in previous episodes, Simon Halsey, for instance, right back in episode <laughs> nine, he studied with Norman Delmar. But how do we go from there to the Boston Symphony Orchestra summer home of Tanglewood? And the four names I was going to mention that you mentioned as, as mentors, you cannot get much bigger than Seji Ozawa, Kurt Mazur, Andre Previn, and of course, it being Tanglewood, Leonard Bernstein. So how do you get from the Royal College of Music to uh, a leafy suburb suburb outside um, Boston? So Tanglewood back
1: then um, was, I reckon, probably the preeminent summer program um, for conductors. Aspen were sort of on the um dogs, but not quite at the same level. Um, so, you know, as a postgraduate conductor, I knew it was the place to go if one could get uh, on the fellowship program. They have a seminar conducting program, but then they took two or three fellows Um, each year which was the thing to do but in order to get on that one would have to go to Boston and audition um, which was a tall order Um, but I got support from the English Speaking Union and uh, bless them, they helped me one January day go to Boston uh, in the snow and the ice and At Symphony Hall, under the gaze of Seiji Ozawa and crew. Um, Again, it was, I suppose there may have been 10 or 15 of us, probably more, 15 at least, um, auditioning. Mm. And uh, you will know the format. It was. Stravinsky, D'Histoire du Soldat, and um, Beethoven 2, and Rossini, La Scala di Seta, and uh, Tchaikovsky, Violin Concerto, you know, things that would reveal pretty immediately whether you knew your stuff and could handle a smaller version of what was the Boston Symphony on stage. Mm. Um, it was all pretty harrowing, but when I think back, those were the days when you were doing auditions every week and, you know, in the groove and uh, conducting auditions are anything but uh, a perfect science. <laughs> um, so you kind of took what came your way and tried not to worry about it if it didn't. But it, things happened. Um to plan. And uh, I was fortunately offered one one of the fellowships and went back in the summer. Um, It was the summer following my second postgraduate year at the college. And yes, um, Masur, Previn, you know, they could have gone on to include Simon Rattle and Charles Lutois and Michael Tilton Thomas. And, you know, they, it was an extraordinary few weeks um, where you were bombarded with personality after personality. Mm. But interestingly, um, in the conducting classes, at least you confronted these people with some of the same repertoire. And I mentioned Beethoven too, which was a sort a standard piece for the summer. And uh, watching these great names flounder in the introduction every bit as much as we did was somehow enlightening and reassuring. And in between the floundering, you know, there was examples of supreme technique, mostly from Seijiozawa, I'd say he was Mm. preeminent in just his ability to show the music. Um, Previn, not so hot on technique. Hmm. Wonderful when he sat down on the keyboard. Mm. Um, Kurt Mazur was intimidating um, and very unclear. Mm. um, Conducting without a baton, which in his case, I don't think helped clarity, but all these little things. And then Bernstein whilst into town, you know, he came in... (laughs) Mm. (laughs) open-top Mercedes, Maestro One, number plate, (laughs) Um, wearing outrageous chintzy bomber jackets and followed by at least two television crews pretty much everywhere he went. Um, And he obviously adored the attention um, and could have been easily dismissed as superficial. A prima donna. Mm. Par exemple. Absolutely right down to his last atom. Except that as soon as you were working with him and it could have been in a room, well it, it, it invariably was, perhaps to the rafters with hangers on and te- television crews, and people photographing left, right and center. He had an uh, incredible ability, which I have to say, I'm sure was sincere, to engage you and only you. on mm. whatever it was you were talking about, uh, and, you know, we... He and I, <laughs> we um, spent one session on the opening of Brahms' Wet well, Woos, Down, down as Brahms four, but uh, we spent about three quarters, three quarters of an hour on the first eight bars. Wow! How you prepared that orchestra for that upbeat? Um, and then what? We'll, What happens after that upbeat? And he went off at various tangents, as he could do like no other. Mm. Um, and you know, I I felt obviously the charisma of the man, but also the greatness of the communicator. Mm. And um I came to see that on many occasions at Tanglewood and since, um, it was an incredible mind and personality in tandem. Um, So I think with Bernstein and Ozawa, who in a sense was the antithesis of Len Bernstein in that he, he didn't talk very much he, um, he, he didn't have that much English mm. um, but he had the most extraordinary conducting technique um, and I learned more from watching him than anybody undoubtedly anybody um, and was lucky enough to go back as invited like back as, as his assistant, um, probably five years, more mm. five years after that.
0: Well, we're going to come on to that because of it, on a previous episode, uh, I'm afraid, what would I call him? A partner in crime of yours, Robert Sparno talked about a, a couple of uh, wonderful years you spent together sharing the assistant conducting role. Uh, you're smiling and no- nodding your head, which is a good sign. Um, I'm going to go briefly back to Bernstein and, and rubber stamp what you just said with a story from the uh, dear departed Bram Tovey, who died earlier this year, who talked about standing in for Bernstein. Um, uh, standing in for a concert that Bernstein was going to attend and Bernstein appearing at the back of the Barbican, again, with a film crew following him, smoking ever, ever, everywhere that he went. He said, but the minute he stood next to me and gave me advice about conducting his Bernstein's music, you know, he said, I was the only person in the room. He said, and that was the most important thing. All of the other side issues, the camera crews, the lighting, the, you know, whatever else, that, that had all been jettisoned and he was there purely to help Bram out in what Bram was doing Um, and so it sounds like yeah as you said he enjoyed the trappings of his lifestyle but it seemed like you know when he needed to be a teacher or a mentor he was 100% involved in doing that.
1: Absolutely Um, I think my first encounter with him was during a concert that I was conducting and I was on on the rostrum Conducting um, Brown's... Uh, what was it? Oh, there was the High Variations. Mm. And um, he appeared in the wings of the hall whilst, whilst I was conducting. <laughs> and again, he was wearing a, a Lakers bomber jacket, <laughs> Which was Gold and he was just about visible enough for all the orchestra and pretty much all the audience to spot him. He just arrives in a blaze of glory at Tanglewood. <laughs> and I had to finish the, uh, the performance and go off stage into his arms, <laughs> Before coming back to take him, because he was all he, he was all about the tactile um and he's oh I I, I could have taught you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just finished the performance and but during um, the, the, the following few weeks he he really did and uh, uh, we never see anyone quite like that
0: I'm sure. Mm. Um, before we go back to Boston one year after you'd been to Tanglewood in 85 in 86 you enter the Leeds conducting competition which was I suppose by now this was the third time it had been run and I've interviewed the other two uh, who won it before you Sean Edwards and Martin Brabins what do you remember about entering that and winning and the aftermath and the aftercare uh did it you know really set you off on your journey to become a conductor and did you get any aftercare?
1: Um well uh it was another example of uh you know an audition conducting audition um this time competition uh that you took or le or left. Um I Seem to remember, I, I didn't get too worked up about it. In fact, it, it was all very last minute because my application had not been successful, um, and being a conductor, <laughs> I was put out. Um, mm-hmm. Why they accepted me? I, you know, I just come back from Tanglewood and uh, been a conducting fellow at the. Royal College, and um, apparently a um, prerequisite was submission of um, uh, a couple of references, referees, which I had given them, I can't remember, Norman Del Mar and Sage or somebody, um, but they wanted the actual references rather than just the referees.
0: Mm. They wanted a written document signed by... Yeah.
1: Uh, Anyway, I was um, a reserve. And um, I only heard that I was going to go to Leeds uh, the week before. And um, so I sort of had nothing to lose um, in that the repertoire was for the first couple of rounds, fairly standard. It were including La Première d'enfant, which I knew quite well, but then I sort of hoped I didn't get through to the final because <laughs> the final concert was really obscure. It was um, Shostakovich 6, Matis de Mala, And Vaughan
0: Williams, six. Oh, wow. Wow. As you said, obscure. I mean, possibly the Shostakovich would have been the most well known, but amongst Shostakovich symphonies, even that, you know, most conductors will have learned one, five, ten.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So uh, when I learned that I was in the final with two others, Um, I had to very quickly learn Vaughan Williams' Sixth Symphony, which I had been assigned. You know, you you do things, burn the candle uh, as necessary, and uh, it it worked out. Now, um, at that time, um, I had received some interest from a manager, which was the next big hurdle, mm. and he um, came to watch the final concert, and literally before I think I w- went up to to receive the prize, had offered to represent me. Um, now he it was a renowned man- management, and I. You know, I thought this is what I wanted all along. Um at that point, um I pretty much received first invitations to conduct most British orchestras. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: And um in terms of follow-up care you mentioned um I don't remember having any further contact with the Leeds competition, mm-hmm. competition as such. Um, but I had this manager um, who, um, who looked after me very well, he was very ambitious for me, um, perhaps in retrospect, too ambitious. Mm-hmm. But I survived most of the first engagements and was invited back most places um, and started to conduct abroad um, quite a bit at the time um, in the former Soviet Union, which was interesting to me. Um, But interestingly, When Seija Zawa invited me back to Boston, um, it was very much disapproved of by my management. What, you're gonna become a an assistant conductor? When you're a fully fledged conductor in your own right, you, you know, and I said, well, um, As far as I was concerned, I still had plenty to learn and I could think of nowhere better to do it than in Boston, the Boston Symphony, which I knew somewhat and with Sages Hour, who had always been very generous, very giving um, and uh, very kind, um, which I thought would be a safe environment to be an assistant. And because there are two of us, me and Bob Spano, it meant that we would only be, have to be contracted in Boston for half the season. Mm. And I could continue pursue my freelance career um, back in Europe and who knows elsewhere in the States. Um, And that's how it worked out. the family came, we all went over to Boston um, for four years and uh, they were marvellous years,
0: yeah. Well, I mean, you basically answered the question that was on the tip of my tongue, which was, you know, if somebody, you know, we're, 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 there's eight years between us now, you know, we're in our 50s and 60 years old. Nowadays, somebody who wins a competition, whether they would even entertain the thought of then going and being an assistant conductor after winning a competition and getting your first steps on the rung of a conducting career, you know, let alone whether the management would agree to it, it would seem something that just wouldn't happen. But and I know because of the way that you've just spoken about Azawa, Boston, and where you thought you were in your life that you know that you did the right thing, uh, and I and I would I I think you know I would agree with you. It's probably a brave decision to go against your management, but then you know what's right for you, you know, and that that's the whole point. You know how much you know or don't know you know that that's the important thing, isn't it?
1: Yes, and as a freelance conductor um as I was for four or five years, then um, you very rarely get close to an orchestra. If you're doing one off gigs here, there, and everywhere. And I, you know, I repeatedly conducted some of the same orchestras, the BBC in Wales, the National Orchestra of Wales. Um, I was getting to know with, you know, spending two or three weeks each season. Mm -hmm. But really to get to know an orchestra from the inside, which I was able to do in Boston. Get to know individuals, the strengths and how they operated. Some of the greatest orchestral players in the world, obviously, um, to be able to get that close to them was a treat and something that uh, you know. In, I don't, I don't think, as a conductor, you often do. As an assistant conductor, it was possible.
0: Mm. You no know, we've I've said that on this you know on this podcast in on many occasions that it's it's the way to get to know an orchestra how it works, but to pick the brains of players you know i'm a, I was a violinist for twenty two years professionally. There's not an awful lot about string playing that you can teach me about you know orchestras, but it meant that I could go and ask you know when I was conducting something and i and the bassoons always fluffed a bit. I could go and ask my friends in the bassoons, you know what why is that difficult? And that's about as near as you're going to get as a conductor, being an assistant, to be able to go and stand in a coffee queue with the trumpets and ask about a chorale, or, you know, the percussionist and ask, you know, why do you use that stick for that tam-tam note, or whatever. You know, it, that's the only way you're going to be able to do it, and I think it's it's a brilliant thing to do if you can.
1: Yeah. And for me, at that stage as well, we uh, we had a growing family but they were still young. We, were, we went to Boston with two children, our two daughters, um, came back to Britain with three hmm. and uh, added another one thereafter. So the the family, which was crucially important, um, was able to make it work for them as well. Um, So they were based in Boston. And as you say, its suburbs are uh, very attractive and leafy and we had a wonderful four years.
0: Now, my next question is basically with a foot either side of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, because if I reel off the places that you've had positions at three years of principal guest conductor at the Stavanger Symphony Orchestra, three years as chief at the Antwerp Symphony Orchestra, uh, then five years at Handel and Haydn Society in America, and from 04, you were music director of the North Carolina Symphony Orchestra, and now you're music director laureate, and since 14, Music Director of the Orchestra Nationale de Bretagne, Plus, of course, you've ever since those early days, you've had an association with the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and even took them on tour to South America and Patagonia, which for the Welsh and the Patagonians was a big thing. I remember reading all about it and hearing about it on the BBC. My question is, your role as Music Director either side of the pond is obviously very different. Do you enjoy that extra thing that comes with being a music director in the United States, where it's not just about waving your arms around, devising programs, uh, you know, it's it's about pressing the flesh of the local philanthropists, uh, you know, trying to convince people they need to invest in their their local orchestra, versus Europe, where it is much more highfalutin, and you're only thinking about the music and waving your arms around. How do you find? Because you you said to me off air you basically spending half your time in north carolina and the other half in france so how do you cope and and do you enjoy the american side of it um
1: i did right i was i i, I was there for 16 years yeah and that's a lot of flesh yes <laughs> um yes i i sort of uh bought into the whole scene out there um because i knew that It was part and parcel of the life and the survival um, of uh, any symphony orchestra. I'd seen it in Boston. Um, So I I went to North Carolina with my eyes open in that respect. Um, And I think partly because it was a regional state orchestra um that identified very much with the outlying areas areas of North Carolina. Um, that part of the job was all important. Mm. Getting on the road, um, small towns in the Appalachian Mountains in one direction, along the the outer banks, the coast in the other direction. Um, And for me, that was a great attraction. Um, We had, we have a first class concert hall in downtown Raleigh. And uh, in addition, we had, I'd say 10 satellite concert series around the whole state. And we would occasionally take tours for two weeks at a time out to the mountains. Um, yeah it was a thrill for me to to meet so many um, different people and uh, um, I grew to really appreciate the community role that a symphony um, performs and Mm. should perform and we probably more than any other Um, American orchestra had an extensive series of education concerts um, and the musicians were really dedicated to them and uh, I appreciated that. So, um, yeah, that was North Carolina, 16 years. In France, hmm, um, they had a very different model, largely... State sponsored, mm. something like ninety percent of um, their income was provided for them, um, but in recent years have had to um, take something from, if you want, the philanthropy in the states, and they have. Uh, um, uh, An American New Yorker as the general manager. And we're really pushing the boat out in that respect. And so the friends uh, of the um, Orchestre National de Bretagne are becoming more and more crucial and important there as well. Um, And uh, I have to say that now, post-pandemic and post-stroke. That has become a something of a trial um, in France for me to perform um, so much so that, you know, the the orchestra has, I think, four different political levels of sponsorship. Um, The politicians, at the city level, at the metropolitan area, the the province of Britannia and the state in Paris. And at every level, there are politicians who want to be consulted and have a couple of hours of your time in very formal French, because there's a certain protocol, you can imagine, uh, with the politicians, and um, that for me, you know, the, no meeting lasts less than two hours, invariably two and a half hours, and it's incredibly tiring. Now, I'm my French, my French is is, is quite good, um, but it's uh, a curious thing that. Since I had the stroke, I will occasionally start a sentence in French and and finish it in Italian, Uh, (laughs) because the Italian was there before the French, and the orchestra is completely bemused by this. But um, it's an interesting um, symptom.
0: (laughs) Well, you mentioned the stroke, uh, and I know it was last year, wasn't it? And I wonder whether you would mind, A, talking about it, but B, talking about how you've had to go through rehab and rehabilitation to be able to conduct again and and what that's meant now, conducting compared to what it meant for the previous 58, 59 years. So please, if you wouldn't mind telling us about your stroke, which I'm sure is very harrowing, um, but I, I know you said to me it's important that we do talk about it.
1: Well, that's who I am now, and that's what what I have to contend with, um, and what I have to offer. Mm. Uh, because I think it's opened up some new horizons, and closed others. Um, yeah, it's, it's two years now since uh, I had the stroke. And it was anything but a stroke in the sense that it didn't happen suddenly, there was no sh- shock. Losing consciousness or anything like that, it was a maddening, gradual um, over nearly three days um, a loss of control um, of my right arm, my right leg, so that um, at when I sort of bottomed out, um, I was completely paralysed mm. in. In that, and um, at that stage, couldn't know what the future held. Well, no doctor was prepared to give a prognosis. Um, there was a chance that I would recover some movement, but I think the writing was on the wall that it was unlikely that I'd get everything back. And that took at least six months for me to recover some control of uh, arm and leg so that I am now able to get around. Um, I walk um, with, Some difficulty, the the knee won't bend, the hamstrings don't work, the the dorsiflexion muscle, which helps you lift your foot up, um, is weak. And uh, I have some problem with the hip flexors. So, you know, I can walk, um, but I use a stick mostly, um, but not on stage. Mm. And in fact, standing is probably more comfortable than walking. Mm. So uh, I found that I, once I got to the rostrum, I was pretty pretty much safe for the next couple of hours. (laughs) Um, But conducting, of course, uh, and I'm right-handed. So conducting is all, for me, was all about um, the button being controlled by the right hand and right arm, and that was showing the essential tempo of the music. So I had to face up to the fact that that was not going to be mm. <laughs> the the case it wasn't going to be possible. I don't yet, I may never, may never, um, have sufficient control to use my right arm. My right arm. It's improving. I, you know, I can still, I can, you can see. There's some dexterity there, and but as I say, not meaningful. <laughs> mm. So all of a sudden, um, I had the prospect of <clears throat> conducting just with my left hand. Um, Not using a baton because I have to turn pages occasionally as well. Um, But essentially this is all I have. Mm. Um, And I must say that orchestras um, have been wonderfully generous so far, especially the orchestras. I know the Welsh, the, the French, the North Carolina Um, and um, you know when I get up on the rostrum I don't feel inhibited at all and I don't honestly feel musically limited Mm. the physical practical task of turning the pages (laughs) is actually the most difficult um, moment, uh, depending on your, the group and the the music, um, you can sometimes turn the pages, and the players will look up horrified <laughs> that you stop beating
0: time. Yeah,
1: yeah. Dep- depending on the repertoire and you know the pr- proficiency of the ensemble, um, which. <laughs> I've come to come to believe that it can actually be a good thing for everybody that regularly during the conducting I stop conducting. Mm. Um, you know, uh it has everybody on the edge of their chairs a bit more. <laughs> um And uh, needing to be self-sufficient, perhaps, but you know, you were an orchestral player and a string player, and you don't need every single beat or every single bar. And frankly, I probably, looking back, overconducted many things, as I think we do. So now I'm much more trusting of uh, the players, um, perhaps much more respectful of the players in some senses. Um, And actually, I've come to think that, um, realize that um, I have a deeper respect. For the music as well. Mm. Um, So I'm probably not taking on so many challenges of new music, um, although I still conduct quite an amount, but I'm revisiting repertoire um, that I've conducted before a number of times. And I am enjoying it so much more. I'm finding the preparation um, is more in-depth because, you know, conductors' career around the place from one concert to another, from one orchestra to another, with a whole different program from week to week. And it's insane. And, you know, I I used to do it willingly and enjoyably, I suppose, to a point. But now I'm having to slow down somewhat. And, (laughs) well, I was going to say gone are the weeks in France, followed by a week in North Carolina, followed... (laughs) The reason I laugh is I'm about to do just that. (laughs) Um, But I, you know, back in the day, it used to be a whole year of alternating transatlantic flights. Um, And uh, I think, well, I know it was too much.
0: Well, I want to say thank you for talking so openly about it. Uh, how harrowing it must have been! Um, what's interesting is that you've, or, you've or, you're already looking at it in such a positive light. You know, conducting one-handed, for instance, means, as you say, you have to stop conducting, to turn the pages over. But then, you know, when we were st- studying, or with whoever we were studying with, you know, how many times were we told about to our left hand, our, our non-beating hand in our pocket, and try and conduct one-handed and show everything that we could? I remember playing in a concert in Tokyo once and we were doing Sibelius Two with Sakura Oromo for the nth time. And halfway through the second movement, he just stopped using his left hand completely and then conducted one-handed for the rest of the movement. I think almost the rest of the symphony. I went off stage and asked him what the problem was and he said, oh, nothing. I just wondered whether I could conduct better with any one hand. Um, uh, and, you know, to try and give himself a technical challenge in a work that we'd all played and he conducted many, many, many times. So it can be done. Um, You know, I suppose leading on to my next question is is going to be another practical point to do with your stroke. But thank you. I just want to say that now for speaking about it being so open and honest and uh, about, you know, how it happened in the future as well. Might I go on to the 11th question because it's fresh in my mind. It's about score study. And I ask every conductor this, you know, how you go about studying a score. And the question I always ask is, are you a scribbler in of 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 markings and red, blue, and black and whatever else? My question now is, were you a scribbler in right-handed with of many things uh, in your scores? And but now I'm assuming you've had to learn to write left-handed, and and has that impacted on your score studying and marking of scores?
1: Right. Um, well. Beforehand, um, I was a marker in pencil, I hope not too heavily of scores. As a student, much more so, and I became progressively less so as um, I grew up (laughs) um, and uh, knew the music better and felt I didn't need so many signposts. But I would mark, certainly, new repertoire up pretty assiduously. Um, Even before the pandemic, before the stroke, I was favoring, especially the standard repertoire, often having a completely unscribbled, score. Mm. And I would find myself with Beethoven symphony, as long as I had the right edition using completely new material. Um, And I find that very refreshing. And, and, um, you know, certainly with certain repertoire, with uh, concertos, um, which had particular idiosyncrasies, I'd have warning marks along the way Um, now um, i can't say i've had to learn to write again with the left hand because you one writes so little these days
0: that's very true we spend a lot of time tipping and tapping screens
1: and tapping so that's something that i've had to get used to is tipping and tapping with the left hand um (laughs) Uh, this morning, incidentally, it uh, is my wife's birthday today. And so I found myself having to write a birthday card legibly. Um, and uh, it's improving. It was, she said, quite legible. Um, <laughs> but my my scores now are very minimalistic hardly a mark in them um and uh, i must say i find that liberating as well
0: dear listeners and friends of this podcast in the past i have offered you the chance to have conducting lessons from myself via my patreon page sadly all of those places have now been taken and until one of my six pupils unsubscribes this offer no longer exists You can, however, still benefit in every other way from subscribing to my Patreon page. I've written an article on score marking, a set of diaries from trips guest conducting abroad, I've started a series of articles on the art of programming, and I'm about to start a new series on string playing for non-string playing conductors. There's over 25 hours of interviews, including my latest one with the principal double bass of the Concertgebouw Orchestra and media personality, Dominic Seldis. All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium, and from just £5 a month, you can gain access to this ever growing resource on conductors and conducting. That's P A T R E O N.com. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all important 10 questions with my guest, Grant Llewellyn. Grant, it's 10 questions time, the questions that no conductor can avoid if they appear on this podcast at least. And I always start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate?
1: I'm thinking of musical noises um, because there's a whole nature outside which I adore. But um, I think, especially now that I cannot play the cello anymore, there is nothing more thrilling than the sound of the cello it's the most sonorous beautiful instrument that you can imagine and especially it's thrilling when you're playing it yourself and this sound is literally coming from within and, and, and i uh, i regret that more than anything um uh, not being able to to play anymore. Um, and I, I suppose, in a similar sort of way, the sound that I always have this abiding memory of hating was um, when I I started the cello um, with these wonderful Old spinster sisters in Tenby, south of that, uh, in Pembrokeshire, teaching. Um, and the younger sister who taught viola and violin was an absolute demon. And uh, we had string classes every Saturday morning. And uh, I remember being a, one of these. And some of the violas and, and the violin started scratching away on their instruments, the wrong side of the bridge, mm. which is quite excruciating in itself, but it was absolutely nothing compared to the scream of horror from their violin teacher, who shrieks <laughs> up the top of her voice. And that stays with me to this day. It's worse than playing the wrong side of the bridge.
0: Brilliant! Absolutely brilliant. I can imagine somebody's shriek. You know, there's nothing quite so piercing as a as a human voice that goes right through you. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And she it was a, she was diminutive, <laughs> this lady, and perhaps the fact that it was a female voice as well. Annie, well, it was so high pitched and
0: excruciating. If you had twenty four hours free, what would you spend it doing? Well. <sighs> I would hope to be in Pembrokeshire,
1: my home, and uh, the family with me, because uh, if ever we have free time, we always end up on the Glen Beach, just outside Saundersford, between Saundersford and Tenby. Um, I grew up as a young boy within a stone's throw of this beautiful little cove. Um, uh, As I say, don't tell anybody about it. I won't. (laughs) It's private, and when the tide comes in, you have it to yourself. There's a little cave there as well. And when the tide goes out, it's the perfect cricket pitch, soccer, rugby, you name it, rock pools, Um, So it would be 24 hours on the Glen Beach in Sorensville with my kids.
0: Number four, and I always enjoy the answers to this because we get to talk about our favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear. Who would they be? I've always had a sneaking suspicion that I would
1: have liked very much the company of Pierre Monteur.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, and I say his company, um, but of co- course, supreme um, amongst that implies his musicianship. And I've, I've never, I still haven't found a recording of anything that he does disappointing, whether it be Haydn, Mozart or Stravinsky. Um, uh, the man um just has I think a wonderful instinct for music making and would undoubtedly be the most colorful of characters as well
0: well it seems to be maybe it's just me and I haven't listened to enough of his recordings but he seems to be mainly known and remembered these days for the you know hours and hours and hours and hours of rehearsing the, the for the world premiere of the Roger spring but you know that's my fault and i should maybe listen to some more of his recordings and i now will on the basis of your recommendation um but he's not a name that's come up in the past at all i don't think as an answer to that question so thank you number five is somewhat harder sometimes people have repertoire specific about number five sometimes it's just you know workmen you know, the way they 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 work in our profession and how much they admire them and occasionally as i've said people refuse to answer the question. Uh, and the question for number five is, who would be your favorite current conductor or conductors?
1: Yeah, I can see why people refuse. Um, it's a bit of a cop-out, um, but I would like to divide the answer between my my, my mentors, mm-hmm. who are still with us, um, so on the one hand, Sejo's hour. And uh when I, I mentioned John John Elliott Gardner, um he has been an inspiration and uh the person whose recordings I perhaps most admire. Um and uh so ever since school. Um and then shortly after school, of course, Simon Rattle in Birmingham. Um I was lucky to get quite close to Simon and um, he's been, well, there's a good reason why the Burning Philharmonic um, takes somebody and has uh, been such a success. So in a sense, they are are my three mentors, um, but I also have tremendous time for um, the, the, new generation, the younger generation of of British conductors, Um, you know, (laughs) it's a fact of life that conductors don't often meet each other. Mm. Um, And I can't say that I've seen enough of the younger generation in concert, but I've heard broadcasts and um, been tremendously impressed Um, so I'm not going to name any names but uh, I think it's an exciting time for um, orchestras in this country.
0: Well you've named three names who have been mentioned before Simon Rattle definitely possibly more than anybody else. Um, Azawa definitely I think Bob Spano even had the same answer and I'm not surprised of course you spent both of you spent years watching his every move and uh, John Elliott Gardner. And you're right. Conductors do not meet each other very often at all, and it's one of the bonuses of this podcast for me, is I've now met, I don't know, 117 of you, Um, and and some of those people I've kept in touch with, and we've we've got on very well, and it's been a bonus because, as you say, unless you bump into, you go to one of their concerts, or you bump into each other at an airport or a motorway service station, you know, in transit. You just don't meet each other. And so, yeah, you're right. Uh, and the younger generation, you're absolutely right. It's just that there are some great conductors out there. So, perfectly valid answers. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted?
1: Wow. Um, well, I, I, technically, yeah, I think I'm going to go for Leonard Bernstein's Westard story but not in a concert version, but in the film version, the original film version with a live orchestra.
0: Live to the film, yeah, 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 yeah. And that blew my
1: brains out. You know, it's one thing conducting the score and all its pitfalls, But it is another thing, conducting it to the original screen. And (laughs) the Jets and the Sharks do not always keep good time. um, (laughs) uh, To say nothing for Tony or Maria. Um, And in fact, in the same sort of way, it was almost as difficult, but not so intricate a score but accompanying Judy Garland when I did um, on The Wizard of Oz uh, in the same way. that You know, you, you take a an orchestra s- soundtrack out of the original and then try and put it back live. It is a fiend. I don't know, um, you know, I think difficult as difficult in its own way, would be Strauss's *Metamorphosen*, um, which I conducted at Gonville and Keys College, Cambridge, um, and uh, it left me totally distraught um, and uh, wiped out in a way that I don't don't think I've been with any other piece.
0: It's a it's a very very emotional piece to conduct i've done it two or three times and i've got it coming up again later this season in finland um and also i played it i played first violin and ninth and tenth in my career maybe sixth once as well uh yeah. because of the 10 violin parts uh and it, it is yeah it's a tough piece if you invest anything of yourself in it it's tough as for conducting live to film i've done it once uh, and mine was nothing like as hard as yours. And my, I was doing North by Northwest, uh, the Herman score. Um, you know, I didn't have to mix with voices or oh my god, you know that that sounds incredibly, incredibly tough. I have a question six a, um, which is really aimed at you because of you suffering your stroke. What was the first thing you conducted when you came back? And how hard was it for you to convince yourself that, yes, you could do it with one hand? Um, what was the f- the first concert that you did when you came back?
1: Well, the, the first project, because it was during the pandemic, um, so we were all in the studios and recording everything that we um, could do, was a recording of the Haydn um three early symphonies, six, seven, eight, eight uh, Mata, Midi, and Soir, with um, my orchestra in France. And um, I very quickly forgot that I had any handicap. Brilliant. Which, which was pleasing. I mean, I, I wasn't trying to forget, I just did. Um, and that is the case, um, to this day uh, with audiences. Uh, if you can get me to the rostrum, <laughs> then I'm a- away and I'm okay.
0: Well, I had to ask because you know it, it must have felt a little bit like it did way back when, for all of us, when the first time, you can practise in front of a mirror, you can practise with your eyes shut, you can practise with a score, you can practise conducting along to a CD if you want, but nothing, prepares you for the first time you go out and do it with a live orchestra and it must have been felt the same when you first started to rehearse just briefly I uh, thought I'm oh, I'm you know uh, I'm starting all over again oh I, I was terrified mm.
1: um and I'm still somewhat anxious um especially with a new orchestra, the first rehearsal. You know, what does the management tell an orchestra? Oh, well, Grant is only able to use his left hand. Uh, I I hope you can all follow. Um, I don't think that that is necessary anymore. Mm. People will realise during the course of the first rehearsal or not. Mm. And uh, interestingly, um, there are quite a, a few... Members who just see me and it's it, it looks fairly natural and so they don't question. Hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, there are still things that I am learning to do better. Um, you'd appreciate the beat patterns are a mirror of what the right hand did, and whenever um they become more intricate it, The subdivision for instance you know if you have to subdivide 12 with your left hand you've got so many beats going that way and uh and then you've got a page turn in the middle of it and <laughs> you know there are some practical limitations which i'm working on literally you know beating five and seven and what have you um is it, sometimes a challenge but uh that's the least of our concerns, really. Mm. You know, beating... I try to be as clear as I possibly can without the baton, um, but they seem to be able
0: to follow perfectly well. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Now, I saw this on the crib
1: sheet that you sent out, and it says in no uncertain terms, capital letters, you are not allowed to answer your mobile phone. And I applauded that when I saw that, you know, way back when, pre all of this. And um, then I had a stroke. And suddenly the practical challenges of getting around airports, immigration customs, especially with the pandemic, payment of any sort, research, internet, sound libraries, is a major challenge for me now. I, I, I just can't carry things and um and so i'm going to break all of your rules like <laughs> sorry about this grant
0: grant i will allow it because i, I have, have been, I, I will allow it I, yeah you know i i would not have been able to survive
1: traveling under the pandemic with visas and tickets and passes and special permissions from the french government without this um it it has absolutely been a lifeline for me so please may I make an exception
0: you are allowed to have phone I don't think I've allowed phone as an answer since oh I don't know episode three or four and the reason that's why I banned it because I can see everybody giving the same answer but I've not had anybody on who's had a stroke who's can only use one arm and I will allow, very much allow you to have that as an answer because, right. you know, frankly, every, the rest of us have, you know, with two hands, we you know, that's fine. For you, I can see, to pay with the, your phone, to be able to access everything that you need with your phone, uh, it's a lifeline that you can't live without and therefore I fully and utterly allow it.
1: You're very gracious.
0: <laughs> what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor?
1: I think in this day and age, I would change the ability to fly transatlantic and conduct the next morning, whether you're in Europe or in the United States. It's possible, and I've done it far too often. And I would like to bring back ocean liners. In in fact, one of the great perks of conducting in Brittany is that I take Brittany ferries to work. And it's an overnight trip on a ferry with a cabin, very comfortable. You wake up up in St Malo or Roscoff and you've got a short drive and then rehearsals the day after. But Mm -hmm. I always leave a good day in between to recover because traveling, it takes its toll. And uh, the number of times I've flown in to a city, to an orchestra, jet lagged, strung out, um, and overtired, overtired, Mm -hmm. um, and forced myself through an engagement. Um, it's
0: not healthy. No. I remember Andrew Lytton in episode, I can't remember if it's called the one or two, but the first episode talked about his time when he was travelling from Dallas to Bergen and the other way back around, you know, and landing and then rehearsing the very next morning with no day off. I did it once. I got bumped up a flight from Heathrow to Buenos Aires and had to go the, the next day. I was put on the next day's flight. Which meant that I landed at sort of like half seven in the morning, and I had a rehearsal at ten o'clock the same morning in Buenos Aires. Now that wasn't my fault; that was British Airways' fault for dumping me off the plane. But I've never, I've never conducted a rehearsal feeling so goddamn awful in my life. And and no, you're right. When you know you can maybe do that once in a blue moon, but if you're doing that regularly, and once every two weeks, or once a month, or it catches up on you. Um, and so, I think you know, building a day off is absolutely paramount but also try to avoid traveling that far anyway um but yeah yeah. i mean incidentally
1: they never were able to find a cause for my stroke i've had every test in the book and everything seems fine Mm. which is reassuring in one sense but on the other hand, it would be nice to know. And, you know, 30 years of transatlantic flights won't have helped.
0: What profession other than your own would you like to attempt or have liked to have attempted in the past?
1: I toyed with the sensible answer to this, which would have been a teacher of some sort. But the profession which I'm most intrigued by, had I pursued it,
0: would have been professional footballer. Ah, you mentioned you played football professionally, I'm assuming to some degree in Italy when you were there for a year.
1: It was sort of semi-professional in Italy, but they they, they paid quite well. Um, you know, I played at Cambridge and uh, to a, a reasonable level, um, at which point... Music took over, took over really, but uh, you know, watching a lot of football as I do, um, had I been made to work at some areas of my game, you always wonder whether you would have survived in the Tottenham midfield. I I was pretty good in the air. I think I read the game quite well Um, a midfield role was my preferred position probably headed the ball too often got to think of of the stroke now Um, but uh, no I I don't don't know I'll never know but uh, you asked the question and it was a sometime dream of mine
0: and the final question, Grant, is my favourite of all. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? <laughs>
1: oh gosh, um, I, I think I would keep it simple. Um, frankly, if this world is going to end, I, I don't want it to end with a full stomach. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I. I think I would go with some something from my garden because I enjoy gardening, and um, I probably go for the pimientos de padrón. Do you know these green peppers?
0: I do, padrón peppers. Yes,
1: uh, which are absolutely delicious when. Um, roasted with a bit of olive oil and salt um, and if if I could have a plate of my own pimientos and a glass of dry white I don't know, chablis or something, I would be in heaven so it's very cheap for you if you're providing this but just a glass of chablis and a bowl of pimientos and let the world go to hell in a a basket, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Well, I haven't offered to pay, but thank you for keeping it cheap. I mean, compared to Leonard Slatkins, which, you know, with the flights, the wine list and the food, I mean, you know, it cost me about 10,000 quid. Um, Yeah, thank you for keeping it cheap. But as a lover of Padron Peppers, and it was actually Alistair Malloy, the percussionist and presenter, who introduced me to those uh, on one of our many trips to Liverpool. Uh, I love them. I think they're wonderful. And we we have them at home. And wonderful it's been chatting to you, Grant. It's been uh, educative. It's been informative. It's been touching. uh, And I've really, really enjoyed chatting to you. And I hope very soon that I can meet up with you. And I will buy the peppers and the wine if we do. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Mike. It's been a pleasure.
0: A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a conductor whose early career was as the founder of a world-famous string quartet. After retiring as a violinist, he has had a very successful career, with title positions in Switzerland, Hungary, the Republic of Ireland, the United Kingdom, and his native Hungary. But until then, bye-bye.